and welcome to episode two of Embodied Business Inspired Brain. I am your host, Anne Bishop, and today we are going to be deep diving into this amazing book written by Anne Murphy Paul called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. And the reason we were so drawn to this is because we feel that um, as entrepreneurs within the embodied practice space, we're constantly thinking outside of our bodies to give the most to our students, our clients, our customers. But are we really harnessing that, that power and that insight and that embodied intuition when we're thinking about our business? And so today we're really gonna be teasing that apart I'm going to be sharing a bit of my story around transitioning from independent contractors to employees and how my intuition really led the way through that uh, as I am in California and we had a big law that passed a few years ago in 2019. And then we're going to geek out with all of you about some interoception, exteroception, the polyvagal theory and distributed cognition. And we're really going to weave those together and share our stories of how stepping into entrepreneurship as young women influenced our connection to intuition and really how I've seen it grown um, over time. And so, uh, of course, we always want you to come away with uh, some inspired ideas uh, and some exciting and, and also some grounding into your body through this podcast. So, Please enjoy. Now, <laughs> right. welcome everybody. <laughs> oh my goodness. Episode two of the Embodied Business Inspired Brain podcast. And we're going to just jump right in today because we have a lot to share with you. We are exploring a wonderful resource, which um, just opens up the doors to like all of what we are about Um, It's called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. What does that mean, to think outside the brain? Well, the title of today's episode is, even though I did not put it in the the live description, (laughs) is The Case for an Embodied Business. So in episode one, We talked a lot about what it meant to be embodied, the definition of embodiment, like the experience of embodiment, the impact of building and creating from an embodied experience. And today in episode two, you're going to get some of the most wonderful, nerdy, like sciencey goodness from Anne and I that really supports what can I think sometimes feel like, and Anne is going to speak to this, two things that should be separate, right? Our our personal, juicy, human, embodied, like body-based or emotional experience. And I think that's a, that's a huge piece, right? The emotional piece should be separate. Like we as a person should be separate from the business, The business is analytical, it's strategic, it's defined, it's clear, it's black and white, it's, dare I say, masculine, patriarchal. (laughs) So I want to start by letting Anne dig into this because she has had a different experience than I have had in this, but it is, I think, the more common experience of separation. What is that, Anne? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I opened uh, my studio at 20, I think I was 22 years old. And um, I think at first I really leaned a lot on this idea that I had to separate my thoughts about my business, like the structure of my business and how I sold things as my business and how I marketed my business and how I presented that business side to clients um, in a way that was very separate from how then I would like all of a sudden take that hat on and then put on like the super nurturing hat and the deep listening hat and the let's do this right hat. I tended to work with a lot of students in pain um, as I started Pilates in pain. Um, and I just kind of gravitated towards that, um, that market. Um, so what I think was challenging and, and about that was that there were times in my business where when I would have more of an embodied based idea or an intuitive hit um, is an intuitive hit. A lot of times is like what I call like, you know, just a good idea that you might get about your business. <laughs> um, I would sometimes act on them, but only if they kind of fell within the structure that already made sense. Or I would, I would, kind of only act on them if, if the idea, um, yeah, if it already fell into what made sense or of the structure that was, that I had already made versus doing something that maybe nobody else was doing or a little radical. So I'll give an example of this. So, um, my studio will be celebrating 20 years this year and probably for the last probably eight years, I have desired to really have, I really desired to have employees. Um, but I had practiced not being much of a leader or a micromanager for many, many years because the rules in California were very, very strict about how to lead your team if you had independent contractors, such as mm -hmm not telling them, you know, when to show up. Or, I mean, basically not telling them anything <laughs> because right. they had to have their own business. <laughs> totally hands off. You had to be completely hands off. And so I had a lot of fear yeah. around, well, I don't know how to manage because I've actively been practicing not managing so that I was in mm. compliance with the law. Um, and so that was a big piece that held me back, I think, for a really long time. And so in, I think it was 18 or not yet, this fall of 18, California changed the law. People brought a suit against Uber. Um, and where they said, you know, you, to, if you offer the services that the, that the business provides, then you're required to, to be an employer. And so if I had a Pilates teachers in my studio, um, and I was selling Pilates, they needed to be employees unless they signed like a lease agreement with me. Um, and I just knew, and I'd known for a long time for me to build what I wanted to build, which and any great business it requires a team, right? Um, of people heading in the same direction. Because for me, when I had independent contractors, it felt like it was a lot of, you know, sort of people going in different directions and really taking their own, their own business was always first because that that's the way it was. It wasn't 
that the studio business was first. And that's really different with employees um, was what I found. And so, but when I thought about employees internally for a long time before that 2018 change in the law, in which case we changed everyone over, is um, I felt really like, I felt in inside like, yeah, I really want that, but I'd always push it down because, well, this is the way I've been operating a lot of it was like, it'll really change the tax structure. Can I afford it? How, like I was really stuck in the how and I didn't know how, how I was going to do it. And so that was really quite, quite challenging. But I found that when I stepped into the employee perspective, it just, and, and was an employer and then learned the techniques of leadership and leading, it just felt like all of a sudden, like, I guess, I think I felt whole actually. Mm. And I think that goes back to the question from last week, like, what is your business asking of you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and how we can maybe not really answer that question, except from a whole perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Like we can answer it in part, but not in whole right? So making the case for an embodied business, you, if you are not, if you are not asking or answering questions, you know, allowing all aspects of you to be acknowledged, you're going to get into trouble at some point, right? And in my experience of not asking the right questions and therefore not driving the, the, the whole, the whole answer has, has the repercussions have been like burnout, resentment, complete and utter dissatisfaction. Yeah. Um, like to the point of, of really having it, it like manifest a very toxic work partnership business environment. So what we really want to share with you today is that this idea of embodiment is not woo-woo. Like it's not about like, oh, we're here to talk to you about soft skills, which is absolute nonsense anyway, which we I, I would like to eradicate the the delineation between hard skills and soft skills because I feel, again, like it's very binary. It's very female and male, right? It's like, let's just not. Like the moment you start to say, oh, that's a soft skill, question whether or not it's just that you don't know the value of the skill. Hmm. So, so and that's maybe a whole episode, but this, this book, one, we want to offer a resource Two, we want to share with you the science behind the way we as humans are actually designed to function is in a holistic way, not in a separate way. Right. So, um, one of the things that I loved when I started reading this book was, um, she quotes in the in the prologue uh, the French philosopher Frederick Gross, and she quotes Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is it's like a quote from Nietzsche in Gross's book, and it's Gross's book is called The Philosophy of Walking. And what I love is Gross says a philosophy in the philosophy of walking. Think of the book as an expression of physiology. Think of the book as an expression of physiology. So the thing that you're reading is not an expression of somebody's thinking, not wholly, 
it's an expression of the physical entity as well, right? And so how do we, how, how do we make that connection, right? What does that mean? Like that you hear me say something and, or you read something, but it's not just an intellect, right? It's just not an intellectual concept. It's a, it's actually coming from the physiology of, of the person. And then this other quote by Nietzsche about sitting, right? Sit as little as possible. Do not believe, this is my favorite part, do not believe any idea not born in the open air and of free movement. Mm. Do not believe any idea not born in the open air or of free movement. And the implication is that if you are sitting in a room that is unnatural and oppressive and closed and not in touch with the open air in the natural world, and you're not expressing through your body that you're not actually tapping into all of your potential or creativity. So the question I really want to help you answer today is how do I begin to marry my intellect and the rest of myself? And how do I bring that all of me, last week we talked about <laughs> the the definition by Susan Apotion, right? Which was like bringing all your cells to life. That was the coyote farting analogy. <laughs> how do you how do you bring all your cells to life? How do you one? You have to. I I feel like maybe this is not true. You have to first believe it, but then Anna's a big fan of fake it till you make it, which I which I am too. But like, do you have to believe the idea before you can start implementing the idea? Or do you implement the idea until you believe the idea? I'm not sure. It's a chicken and egg uh, question. But that is what I want to, that's, that's my motivation today with sharing this material. So Anne, let's talk about, um, let's talk about there's, there's like two pairs of threes in this book that I really appreciated. And the first, the first set of threes is, that we are um, experiencing in three different ways, right? We're experiencing through the physical space that we're in, right? So, so what is impacting the way that we think is our physical environment, right? How we, how we feel in that physical environment. And I have a lot to say about that because that really resonates in terms of safety and the nervous system. So the spaces we occupy the feeling and the movement in our body, that's our physiology, right? And Anne's going to talk to you about something called interoception today. And then how our minds interact with other minds in, in the context. So Anne and I are in a context right now and how are our minds engaging, interacting, and creating together. So you don't have to be in the same physical space. You're just in the same, you know, could be in the same virtual space. And these threes are actually based in three areas of study. Do you want to talk about this part, Anne? This is kind of your jam. The study of embodied cognition, situated cognition, and distributed cognition, which I love. This is like, we're getting down to the meat of it now. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm happy to speak to this the first one you spoke of, the sense of embodied cognition. 
Um, and that's this way of how do we think um, with our brains and, or excuse me, how do we think with our bodies? And one of the things that's really interested me for quite some time is this sense of, of body awareness. And so as a Pilates teacher for many years, when I first began studying body awareness, I was like, okay, I'm not just teaching students how to move. I'm also teaching them how to feel, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we were speaking yesterday, actually, of the challenge of frequently when people are trying to to describe how they feel, they, there is no language for them. Mm, yes. They don't know what to say because it's not within our culture, our society to kind of talk about how you feel or it's sort of boxed into, oh, you must be talking about emotions versus bodily mm. sensations. Now, a lot of, there is the argument that our feelings arise from our bodily sensations. So if we can only put words to our feelings, then we're missing the layer underneath, which mm -hmm. is what are we feeling in our body that gives rise to that emotion? Right. And the power of this concept of embodied cognition is that if you can actually get below the feelings of sadness, of grief, of joy, and really start to settle in and notice what the feelings are in your body, then you have more self-knowledge, more knowledge to support others, and the ability I think to make decisions, have decision-making come more from a body place. And whether the decision is about if you're an embodied practitioner, AKA a Pilates instructor, and you're like, okay, I'm going to put my hand on this person here. And they don't even, I don't even know why I put my hand on them, but I, it was like happened even before my conscious thought, my hand just went to them or I gave this cue and I don't even know why, but it came out before I even thought about it. it so I it was like, it was an, I would say it was intuitive, right? It was an intuition that I did these things. But, and in your business, right? Then if you turn to your business and you say, I had this intuition that I wanted to promote X, Y, or Z, um, you know, <laughs> program, or I have an intuition that I'm going to reach out to this specific individual so that I can create a relationship with them or, or deep, deepen a connection. The reality is, is that's not a magical thing that just happens. <laughs> There's the science underneath it within embodied cognition. And the science underneath it is this deep understanding of interoception, which is our, within our unconscious mind, or you could say our embodied mind within the, th the thinking of our bodies is able to understand things that are more complex and understand them faster than our conscious brain can, can notice them. So you will see this in your own life if you, particularly if you're a teacher and you begin to do something 
and you don't even know why you do it, but then it completely works for the student, you know, and it's like, like successful. It's because your intuition, your, your body, your embodied cognition picked up on it faster than maybe like the, the concept of your brain. And so, and, and your thinking, your conscious mind. And so that's been my biggest, um, really kind of excitement about this work is that again, it's not a soft science. It's just the science hadn't, hadn't in my mind looked that deep yet. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, we're having, isn't this almost always the way it is you're having an experience and then you are exploring the experience to understand it better and therefore arises the science, right? So there, there are lots of things in our world like that. I wonder if you would share the definition of interoception so people are clear about what that means and can begin to ask, do I have that? Can I sense that? Am I, am I, uh, you know, am I open to that? Um, so let's clarify interoception and, and, and then maybe um, the difference between interoception and extraoception. Yes. I love that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Happy to do that. Uh, so interoception is the ability is a part of our brain and it, okay. Interoception. I'm getting excited. Interoception <laughs> is an awareness. Okay. It's a type of awareness that you have within your body. And one of the ways that interoception is most studied through scientific research is heartbeat perception. And one of the things that they, which I thought was so interesting in the book, um, The Extended Mind, is they were doing a study and a husband and a wife were, were like coming up to, you know, to, to, to I think it was like to, to be a part of the study. And the study was like asking them a question and their husband and wife, they've been married for like decades. And, and the person involved in the study said, oh yeah, you know, we're today, usually you don't tell people in the study what you're going to do. So it's something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but the question to the (laughs) couple was essentially like, you know, yeah, like today we're going to ask you about um, your, your, your heartbeat sensation. And the husband was like, oh, great, I got this. And the woman was like, I- I've never, I've never felt my heartbeat. What are you talking about? <laughs> mm. And what the, um, what the book was pointing out is like, it's just not within our collective consciousness for people to even talk about like, oh, I have a deep awareness of my heartbeat and when it's beating or I don't. And so in a, I remember an example of this myself. So I was working um, with a student um, who was a year behind me within my graduate program. And he was also talking a lot about interoception and talking about heartbeat awareness. And I remember thinking like, and he was a phenomenal dancer. And I was like, in my mind, I was just kind of a little sad because I don't have the best heartbeat awareness. I'm not the person who can feel my heartbeat and like, go like, okay. And now, now I know like what the rhythm is of something, or I can match it. 
Whereas I do think my life partner, um, Matt, he ha- he he does have a very good sense of his heartbeat. Mm. I also know, and one of the things that really attracted me to, about him was almost the sense of like wisdom that he had. And when I think of wisdom, mm-hmm. I think of more like embodied intelligence. Um, in my mind, I think that's what I thought. I also know that we have very different physiologies and I, I'm like speculating here, but (laughs) I believe that like, I think that his perception of his heartbeat may be different because the physiology or the, 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 the difference in his blood vessels and his ability to perceive that is different than mine. Hmm. Um, I, I don't I bet that's a part. I would imagine it's a part of it, right? Yeah. It's not all just about awareness. It right. is about like how accessible is the awareness, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, you can love body awareness and interoception and not have a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> You feel like you can't feel your heartbeat. It's okay. Um, well, but yes, yeah, so I can. I can explain it a bit more. I didn't mean to totally go on a tangent there, but no, that was great. That was great. Well, I want to just offer like a like another aspect. Mm-hmm. Let's keep shedding light on introception because what excites me about that is that introception is linked to an emotional experience because as Anne was saying, like really our emotions are arising from our body experience. And the vehicle for that is the nervous system. And more specifically, the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the, the, the wandering nerve. It's the longest nerve. It's the 10th cranial nerve. And it, it, it like comes out of the root of your brain and down through the front of your throat. It, it comes through the larynx and the pharynx and down and innervates the lungs and the heart and the diaphragm and then into almost all of your viscera, your gut. And the unique thing about the vagus nerve is it's taking information from the body. They say 80 to 90% is afferent. It's taking information from the body and sending it to the brain. And then your brain is, an inter- is interpreting it. And you're like, I feel sad. I feel agitated. But, but again, it's like, we we're missing this piece, right. That Anne is talking about of like the gut experience being translated strictly to an emotional response or emotional experience. It's like, what if we could, what if we could pause for a moment and say, here's the body experience, here's the associated emotional experience. And, and now I can, I can kind of align or rectify or understand the two and how they influence each other. So Interoception is like, are you listening to your gut? That's how I think of it. Like, can I feel my my gut response? Because I think a lot of times intuition is, we talk about that, listening to your gut. Like there's a reason because your vagus nerve is, is there. It's sending information. It's like if you're in fight or flight and you're constricted, your nervous system is vulnerable, you're going to feel all kinds of tension, right? In your, in your gut, in your solar plexus, in, in your, like in your belly, maybe in your back, your shoulders are going to hunch. You're going to, you know, like there's a, there's a physical experience that then gets translated into how we identify 
the emotional experience. Um, but I, but I love this. I love the connection, right? Because interoception is, it, it really, for me has been a way for a, and this is interesting because I think for a long time as a, a young entrepreneur, I did actually have the same experience that you had, Anne. Like, I think I lost touch with my yeah. intuition Yeah. because I feel like particularly as a woman and as a young entrepreneur, and I had this experience as a young female journalist too, like I'm not qualified mm-hmm. enough to be doing this job. I'm not, I'm too young. I'm a girl. You know, what do I know about journalism? What do I know about business? And so I do think for a long time, I lost touch with my willingness to listen to my intuition. And so that, that, that voice got real quiet. But when I started to study introception and understand it better, and then notice that I actually did have a very strong experience of my body first, and then my intellectual or emotional like identification, it's like that was the gateway for me to shift, to go, oh, I can listen to this as something more than just um, something separate, right? Like my body is saying this thing, but but really it doesn't have any impact or influence on what I should actually do. Um. What else? There's so there's so yeah. much. I feel like couple, couple. You asked me to kind of differentiate between exteroception and interoception. So yeah, let's do that. That'll be helpful. Yeah, one way you can think about interoception is to think of it more as like a global state. Like, how do I? How is my body feeling? Not necessarily emotionally, but how is just my body feeling overall? Like just mm-hmm. overall. Um. And so that, that's more of a global perception. Again, if you have been trained within or either been a student of or are a teacher of movement that is asking you a lot about alignment, that deeply affect, or if you're in sports, right? You really care about like your training and are you doing it properly? Um, a lot of times there you're, you're working with exteroception. And so that is frequently like the sense of weight. So if you've ever laid on a foam roller or you've asked, if you, if you do that all the time, or you teach people that all the time and you're asking them like, Hey, where is your weight along the foam roller? Oh, do you feel heavy in your head? Do you feel heavy in your tailbone, heavy in your bra line, mid back, et cetera. Um, that is keying into your exteroception because you're essentially keying into your mechanoreceptors, understanding the sense of weight in your body. And that is more of a discrete concept. So whereas interoception is more of like a global sense, exteroception is more of a like, well, what does this particular spot feel or this particular spot feel? Another example of exteroception is um, like feeling touch. So anywhere mm-hmm. on your body, something like that. Um, and so I feel like as for me, for someone who taught Pilates for many years, I, I was really good at, at, at exteroception. But 
the way that I was taught to teach Pilates, I was never inviting myself or inviting my students to systemically or really thoughtfully think about the interoceptive field. Like, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that it was the interoceptive change that the students loved the most. Because what do they say when they leave your studio? I feel feel great. (laughs) I feel better. Like, they don't, I mean, they might say, oh, and my shoulder's down now. But I doubt it. They're more likely just saying they're noticing that interoception change, right? And the, right. The, the systemic body change, which probably yeah. occurred due to changes that they've made biomechanically and moving their body and all, all, all the good things that exercise does, releasing all the, the happy hormones and things like that when you exercise. But um, I do think that, that that kind of the other really interesting part of this is that your exteroception is located within your parietal lobe, which is a, a separate part of your brain where your interoception is developed, which is with, which is within your insula. And the insula is also responsible for emotions. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also right next to um, your amygdala and, and, and memories and how memories are formed around emotion and things like that. So it's all, it's all very quite, quite interesting, but I think what it's supported uh, me as a, as a teacher is just thinking about how we can guide, guide our students or our clients or our patients more into, into awareness. And then if you take it on the flip side and you say, well, how can this support me in my business? <laughs> and how can this support, um, you know, or an organization or how can this support, um, a group of people working together. And mm. I think a lot of what this sort of melds into the vagus nerve, as you speak about in this concept of co-regulation. Um, mm-hmm. But I think anytime we can, we can get ourselves to have a, a deeper sense of our, of our bodies and saying, well, if I make a decision about my business or am I listening how am I listening to my body and how is that informing my business decisions? And part of running a business is, is making money um, and having a healthy profit and maybe making gobs and gobs of, of financial success. And that was one of the very interesting things that I saw come up in this book, um, which was this study um, that was looking at financiers on Wall Street and what they they were wondering, you know, for the, for the top performers, why are they, why are they making so much money? Um, and why are other people, despite their pedigree and all of their education and all of their analysis, still not a top performer? And so what they did is they, they, they measured the interoceptive ability. So the ability of these financiers to, to judge their heartbeat and the financiers who had the highest interoception also made the most income and had the highest returns. And so there's something about the ability for them to trust their gut and take a lot of money that is not theirs, you know, someone else's. Um, so there's a lot of stress, I imagine, in that job. Um, 
to and 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 maybe do something that's different um and get very very high value returns and although um that is not my field of expertise i i'm also in chantill we're both entrepreneurs and part of that is is bringing a healthy profit to your business and so Chantelle and I have been leaning very deeply more into our ability uh, of trusting our intuition and trusting our bodily sensations when we're making business decisions. And the beautiful thing is we already have a lot of practice at it. So now it's just yeah. connecting the two. Yeah. And I keep thinking this, this phrase keeps coming up, state change, mm. like becoming aware of a change in your state of being. Like when I'm thinking about this research study that you just shared, um, it, it makes me go to this second area of investigation in the extended mind, which is situated cognition. And so why I love this is because situationally, right? Like what is our space? What is our environment? And how does it impact our brains? But the thing is, is it's impacting our body first. Yeah. And then our brain is interpreting the information. So she's talking about situated cognition, the influence of place on our thinking environment cues that, um, I can't even read my own writing, um, that something, the sense, oh, that convey the sense of belonging. Okay. So if we're, if we are having if we are in a situation or a space that is sending us signals of safety, yeah, I belong here. I'm safe here. That is a nervous system response. There is another layer of perceiving that was coined by Dr. Stephen Porges, who is also the, um, I never know what, what word to use. He is the, he formulated the theory the polyvagal theory and it's called neuroception and neuroception if through this work is the unconscious assessment of risk that your physiology experiences anytime you enter a space, but it is also in relationship to the people in the space. It's actually, primarily in response to the people in the space, but it is so situational, right? It's not just, it's not just environment. It's who you are interacting with, but what she's saying and what this, this work of, of situational cognition is pointing us to is that when we feel safe in a space, right. And the, the second thing she says, and we have, we feel like we are personally in control. We have personal control. Autonomy. Both of those are forms of safety. Yeah. Not just autonomy though, empowerment. Yeah. Like we have a sense of, I am safe to speak here. I am safe to act here. Like that is incredibly powerful to acknowledge. And I'm thinking about the study of the, of Wall Street, right? It's like, if you are aware of how safe you feel or not, right, how vulnerable you might feel in a space, you can do one of two things, right? You can put yourself in a different space, like if you're feeling vulnerable, 
right? You can put yourself in a different space where you feel safe and therefore you will have better outcomes, right? Your state changes, but you have to be aware of the state in the first place. That's the, that's the embodied piece. Or you can deliberately put, you can change the space, right? Like I'm thinking of like, how would I, if I was in on Wall Street, what would I do to make my situation feel safer? What would I do to feel more personally in control or empowered? Think about when you are aware of that state, safe or not, it gives you choice. And when you are in choice, then you can craft a more optimal state. And when you are in a more optimal state, safe state, you make better decisions, right? You, so I love that it just, it's like this interweaving, right, of things. It's listening, learning how to listen to your state and understanding what you can do to change your state is not just about feeling better. It's about literally making better choices and in this case, making more money, <laughs> right? Like listening to your gut, like it, it just is a beautiful, a beautiful loop, that and, sense and, of safety. And what I also like too about that, that they brought up was like, you're listening and then in that environment, you have to make a very quick decision to act on that. Yes. And I've, I've noticed for myself and my growth, um, and I'm just sharing it because I hope, I hope that it shares others, that it supports others is like, I would have moments of inspiration, but I would frequently talk myself out of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think, and I think, so a lot of it is that trust in understanding, you know, to, to feel to feel the feeling and then, and then take an action step. And I know that's been a big part of my growth edge. <laughs> as yeah. I and it's, it. it's not just talk yourself out of it, but it's like, you just taking a long time to take action. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that's how it, I think that's how it comes up for people is they have, they're like, Yes. And then it takes them like six months to talk themselves into it. And, and what they years. do to talk them or six years. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> and, never and, get long again. <laughs> yeah. And we were just talking about this in another context. It's like when you, when you overthink, you over data collect, you over strategize, right? Mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. really in my mind that, that is, a lack of trusting oneself. And it's like, well, now I need all kinds of affirmation. I need all kinds of research and support. I need all the answers, all the answers, all the answers. Cause I, I'm not going to just take action based on this experience that I'm having. But here's a question for those of you who are listening, what changes when you know, or at least believe and can begin to experience that what you feel is not woo-woo. It's not like, it, it's not made up. It's not like 
it's actually a response in your body. Like your body is telling you something. Like when you trust that, how does that change your ability to take action? I think that's something to get really curious about. And going back to episode one, what is your business asking of you? It's not just this. It's not just your mind. Because the problem with your mind is that your mind tells you all kinds of shit that you should really not believe, right? Like <laughs> you, you have stories, like you, you have beliefs and stories that are going to dictate your actions. And I, I love to say this thing and I believe this thing, which is there are just some things you can't think your way through. You have to feel your way through them. And in a lot of ways, not all ways, because we have to take into account the way trauma shapes our actions and behavior, but it's like you, you can trust your body in a different way than you can trust your mind. But we don't, we don't in this world, we don't, it, it, the commodity is our mind, right? Our thinking, our, our logical thinking. But again, the problem is we're conditioned to think a certain way and believe a certain thing. I want to, I want to go on to the third piece here. The third, because this is like the perfect segue is distributed cognition. Um, and do you know, I, I can't quote the exact research, but that it's the, the studies that they've done, done on um, world records, breaking world records, where athletes like will be at a stalemate for a long time in an area of like, you know, the fastest human or the highest, you know, high jumper or whatever. I'm, I'm thinking of the Olympics right now. And like now the women in speeds or, no, you know, ice skating will land like a quad and like that never needs to happen. Right. Right. So, Mm -hmm. right. So it's like, I, uh, uh, my belief about what's possible changes when I see somebody else doing it. Right. That, That they've done lots of studies on this. Like somebody will break a world record and then all of a sudden everybody is breaking it. It's like the person who broke it is special because they believed something more was possible. Right. They didn't, they weren't adhering to or acting from the limiting belief of like the the highest best thing that's ever happened is this and it would be impossible to overcome that right and like anna's saying now they're just land you know they're landing quads like like you know eating breakfast but that didn't happen before so so this idea of distributed cognition is basically like you and i and and i us together in conversation, like earlier today, we had this hot seat mentoring with one of our teachers and the research really shows that the three of us together, four of us together, five of us together, six of us together can actually accomplish more than each of us individually. And the, the piece is how people in groups can coordinate their individual areas of expertise to work together and produce results that exceed the members' individual contributions, right? It's like, that's why I love being in partnership with Anne. It's like, I'm great. I, I have my zone of genius. I'm great in it. But I love how Anne's zone of genius opens me up to like more, and, and understanding more and questioning more and 
I become more energized and more creative because I see a different possibility through Anne's eyes than, than I could by myself because I am habituated to a certain way of thinking. I'm habituated to a certain way of um, believing what's possible. But distributed cognition is that basically the sum is greater than, right? What is it? What's the thing? Synergy. <laughs> the, the, yeah, synergy. Yeah. Two and two doesn't equal four, it equals five. But whatever it is, the thing equals more than the sum of its parts. <laughs> yeah. But it's not, again, it's not like anecdotal. It's it's science and it's the science of distributed cognition, which I just, I love that so much. Yeah, I think that's something that I, I really enjoy. And I think for many of us, if you've come from a place of studio ownership, you know, unless you've had a partnership, I have never had a partnership in studio ownership, but, you know, it can feel really alone, lonely. And, you know, there isn't this ability to, or, you know, if you're getting your ideas, you might be knocking them off as someone who's not an entrepreneur, you know, and speaking to people who don't have that type of creativity, that type of thinking, you know, I, I found the feedback was always much more, you know, play it safe. I'm like, but that's not how you have to take risk, right? Have a much higher risk mm -hmm. tolerance than entrepreneurs, right? You're going to have a higher risk tolerance. But um, that I that ability to to come together and, and to learn. And what's really cool, what you've been playing around with um, is, is some of that in curriculum design is mm -hmm. how you can um, have distributed, like you can plan for and design for distributed cognition, whether that is an online way of building, um, ideas, um, and bringing ideas together. So we've practiced that a lot, um, with, in some online formats, um, uh, specifically with Google docs and having everyone put in their ideas together, um, in a live experience. And that's allowed, you know, despite the fact that I'm, you know, quasi leading the, 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 the event that we're holding or whatever, I am myself learning so much and we're all building off of each other in our knowledge. And it becomes again, much greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and so that's been really amazing to see that within, uh, just, you know, ideation and, um, and the supporting of, of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and curriculum design, not just in educational design, which is one of the areas that, you know, are of our expertise and what we do mentoring and coaching with our teachers, um, and other embodied practitioners, but also in, in business development and organizational development and leadership right? Understanding how to put people together in a safe situation where they can share ideas. And, and I love how we can think about it from these three different perspectives, right? So that we are, if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, we can design for, plan for, and lead from a place of the whole, the whole person experience. And, and that's, that's it. That's the definition of embodiment. And what we see uh, time and time again is that whether it's through supporting an entrepreneur and building their business from this perspective or building education, designing education from this perspective is that we really are better together. Like we just achieve more together 
And of course, we have to thoughtfully, intentionally craft our situations and our context, which is a whole, you know, art and science in and of itself. One thing I want to add to the distributed cognition piece, which um, again, because I can't help it, brings us back to the nervous system, which is something Anne mentioned before called co-regulation. When we are in a safe situation, when we feel empowered, when we feel like we can be open and take, you know, take action and, and share, but also receive from a nervous system perspective, the bottom line is that Anne and I right now, and you, because you are listening to our voices, are impacted physiologically. Like I change you physiologically and you change me. The moment I hear Anne's voice, honestly, I get calmer. Like I just, yeah, right. You didn't know that. <laughs> I just, I feel, <laughs> I feel steadier. I'm like, oh, but here's my partner. I trust her. I feel more open, more ready, more able. Like we had a conversation this morning that I was like, I need, I really need to talk this out with you. <laughs> I, I like a need to have that experience. But mm. what I know is I'm aware of the state change that happens when I'm in conversation with Anne. But that's, that's a nervous system experience. I feel safe with Anne and I have practiced over many, many years now what's called emotional reciprocity. This is a, this is a part of co-regulation, co right? It's an outcome of co, we're co-regulating because we are interacting and exchanging with each other. And what we do together is positively emotionally reciprocate right? So I feel safe. She feels safe. We have this free flow of, of safety between us, which optimizes our state. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week or in the, in episode one, which was last week, that when it optimizes our brain and our ability to learn and be open and be vulnerable and be more creative and, and listen to our gut. So that's, it's not just about cognition, right? Like it's this deep linking to the entirety of our, our being and our physiology through the nervous system. Oh, it's so cool. All of it. <laughs> um, we have a couple of things that we want to share with you before we close the episode today, but I wonder if um, I want to offer something to you to support the development of your interoception and your awareness of your state changes, which is your, Anne talked about this before, is your heart rate awareness, like your heartbeat awareness. Now, what is also very cool is that this is one of the areas in which they have done the most research around the the way the nervous system, the vagus nerve behaves because the vagus nerve is a braking system. So when I feel in threat, the vagus nerve slows my heart rate. It is responsible, uh, you know, uh, to attuning your heart rate variability, which means that when I feel safe, my heart rate is slower. And when I feel unsafe, it's going to be faster but we need to be tuned into that. So there are a couple of ways you can do that. And, and the first way is just finding your heartbeat. 
like in your wrist or in your neck. And for about a minute to two minutes, tracking the pace change of your heart rate with your in-breath and out-breath. And doing this practice in and of itself will down-regulate your nervous system. So it's going to put you in a more calm, relaxed, and safe state. But I want you to notice the pace, the rhythm, but it's not really the rhythm, it's the pace, right? Of your in of your heartbeat as you breathe in. And then the pace as you breathe out. And you're gonna give this some time because the the more tuned in and present and, and kind of relaxed you get, it's gonna change. Just stopping to tune into that is a really fabulous first step. What we are looking for, a healthy response in terms of the nervous system would be that the, again, as I said, I think that the heart rate would slow down on the out-breath and speed up on the in-breath because the in-breath is a sympathetic nervous system response. It's, it's, it's more in the, it's in the realm of fight or flight and the out-breath is a parasympathetic nervous system response. So it's, it's going to naturally slow us down and calm us. So if that's not the case, what I would encourage you to do is employ a little bit of breath work. And what I love is something called um, resonant frequency breathing. And there are some different ways. Anne's like oh, getting all blissed out. <laughs> Anne, are you there? Are you still with us? <laughs> um, resonant frequency breathing. Uh, let's see if I can remember the patterns. The optimal pattern would be six in, six out. But you can do um, five in seven out, you can do a four in, uh, I think it's four in, five out, five in, six out, five and five, or six and six. I'll put it in the show notes, um, or you can look it up. <laughs> but just practicing, it, again, optimally six in, six out, but if it's like, that's too much for you, you can go, you can do like a, a, a five, seven, um, I kind of tend to like that, the five, seven, and then I can get myself to a six, six. But if you just practice that for a few minutes and then you come back to your heart rate, and I do this with my folks all the time when I'm teaching the vagus nerve work, um, and you you likely have a shift where where your heart rate starts to fluctuate more in alignment with the way that the nervous system works, right? So the in-breath, it will speed up a little bit and the out-breath, it will slow down a little bit. So just a little nugget, teachy nugget to take away with you to help improve your interoception. We have a hot seat mentoring gig tomorrow, 2 p.m. PST. That's Friday the 18th. So we're looking for a couple of um, entrepreneurs, teachers, educators who want to jump into um, asking us some questions. 
And we're going to share more about that in the Facebook group. And then we have something we want to tell them about the, the small group mentoring, Anne. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> about this. Um, so uh, one of the, the, our offering that we are supporting um, entrepreneurs and educators and embodied practitioners or teachers like Pilates teachers, et cetera, right now is we're offering a group uh, mentoring intensive and it's called Action Amplified. And I have pulled it. Oh, where's my, our goal is we're going to teach you in this course, we're going to teach you how to design transformative short course creation. We're going to, that will either ignite your current students and attract and motivate new ones. And so if you are looking for, um, like short course design. And this is something that Chantil has over a decade of experience doing. She first began her 28 day course. Um, it must've been 2012 or something, something yeah. along those lines. And um, mm -hmm. I remember you offered it to teachers. And then at one point you offered it to the students at my studio. And I love that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We were just playing around and trying all sorts of ideas. <laughs> I know. Um, but the the goal is at the end of our time together, well, first off, we are going to absolutely practice distributive cognition. <laughs> so we'll yes. dig into that. You're going to come up with some great ideas that would probably occur better in a group than on your own. And you're but you're mm -hmm. going to develop your own short course, whether that is in person, hybrid online. And we're going to give you all the nuts and bolts around curriculum design how to develop something that has, um, that, that A, gets filled <laughs> and B, you get lots of transformative results in your students. And um, what do you, how are you going to, when you offer transformation to your students, that means they want to continue to work with you. <laughs> so mm -hmm. what are you going to offer them um, at um, on the backside of that um, short course? And so we are going to be offering that, correct, I'm going to make sure I have the dates right, on March 11th mm -hmm. or April 7th. And April 8th. Oh, 8th, March. I think. All mm -hmm. right, let me make a correction. April 8th. And our goal is to have five, um, t uh, five of you in there. I would be super excited to get a non-movement teacher in there with us. <laughs> so we would love to support, um, to because again, I have found in, in, in my time that some of the biggest growth occurs when you step outside of your industry. Um, yes. So if you um, are wanting to step, step in inside the movement industry and maybe you haven't been there yet before, I think you'll, you'll find a beautiful, um, a beautiful experience and one that has a lot of knowledge and a lot, a lot to support you with. And then if you are a movement teacher, uh, we, we got you, we get it. <laughs> We got a lot of experience and we know your troubles. We know your pain and we can, <laughs> we can support you and get into the other side and develop an, an amazing right. course um, that's exciting and fun and creative. Yeah. And sometimes, so for those of you who are listening or if you're listening and you're like, oh, I think this would be perfect for, you know, my friend, partner, relative who's in this other industry, think about, think about it as like a front door offer right? Mm -hmm. It's a way to generate leads for your business 
but it is way more powerful than giving away a video or a checklist or a free something because it's transformative. So it's short term, it's low risk, but it's high value outcome. Um, And we have all the tools and skills to support you in, in, in identifying what is the pain that that you want to solve for your audience, no matter what audience you're in. And then how do you create this engaged opportunity to solve that problem for your people? And when you do that and you market it, because we're going to be talking about how to market it as well, then you do get people who are really aligned and who love you and are transformed and keep working with you. So think of it as a front door offer. Um, it, it, if you are in some other industry other than the movement industry. So there is an application process and we'll put that in the show notes, the application. If you're listening to this and it's 2023, reach out to us and um, we'll share with you what current opportunities we have for doing this kind of distributive cognition work, (laughs) which is so cool. All right. I think we're, that's a wrap for episode two. Thanks, Anne. This was a blast. All right. Thanks for letting me get blissed out. Oh my God. It's fabulous. Fabulous. Go back to it. <laughs> okay. As long as I didn't drool. Okay. No, 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 no drooling. Thanks for drooling. Okay. All right. <laughs> Bye. All right. That wraps up episode two of Embodied Business Inspired Brain. And we really hope that the work of Anne Murphy Paul supports you in grounding yourself more into your intuition to support your business and your career and your life. It's certainly been something that has been really supportive for me, really being able to become a more whole person to really connect that sense of embodiment that I have in my practice and that I teach others, but to really expand that to all facets of my life. Um, And so I hope that you get as many aha moments as I have through this work. In addition, we want to thank Max Mackey for our music. He's located in Colorado. And we also want to invite any sponsors. If you feel like you might have a product or service that supports this listenership, we would love to get in contact with us, you can do so at Emma at PilatesMastersProgram.com. That's Emma at PilatesMastersProgram.com. And we'll put you in contact with our operations director. In addition, today, we'd like to thank you all uh, for listening. If you find this podcast to be inspiring, to really connect to you to really allow you to see how the intersection of business, the brain and embodiment really allows you to be more present in the world in yourself or in your business, then please leave us a review. You can do so on iTunes and you can do so on Spotify and they're also available on YouTube. So we look forward to the feedback and thank you so much for listening.